Hello and welcome to the Third Sector podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave and we are reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we're going to talk about collaborations between charities, why they're a good idea in the current climate, how to go about them, or even are they a good idea at all. But first, we bring you Third Sector's team member in hiding. Stephen Downs has been news editor for coming up to five months now, but his voice has never before been on this podcast. So hello, Steve. Hello. Hello. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. Yeah, I couldn't get away from it in the end, could I? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's weird because you've been emailing begging to come on week in, week out, I thought. Oh, don't expose me. Don't tell the truth. <laughs> uh, so, Steve, you are Third Sector's news editor. What are the big news stories that you've been looking into recently? Well, I've picked out a couple of stories which have interest, not necessarily big stories, but I think one of them's quite amusing and, and one of them's going to make people just raise their eyebrows, I think. So the first one is Rishi Sunak doing a reshuffle, as is the want of the Prime Minister. And yet again, a reshuffle affects the DCMS, which means there's now the eighth different Secretary of State leading culture, media and sport in the last six years. And the uh, lucky person to occupy the seat for probably the next couple of months is Lucy Fraser, who I had to Google, as I'm sure did my colleagues. And she's a former barrister. And in the first few years of her time, she's already fulfilled five different roles, including three other roles as a Minister of State. So just says an awful lot about the way things happen in government, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything to say, except I wonder how long... She will be in that position before the next reshuffle happens. Yes, quite. And I think there's also concerns about the way the civil society brief is looked upon by the government. Now, I wouldn't say it's necessarily just this government. I'm sure it's previous governments of, different, of a different colour. But there is a real feeling that civil society, charity sector, is very much an afterthought. And we don't yet know whether Stuart Andrew is going to stay as Minister for Civil Society. He actually seems quite keen on doing the job, but that's no guarantee that he'll stay in it. One of, as Steve says about Googling, one of the stranger bits of yesterday was getting in touch with DCMS just to say, look, there's a bit of a mini reshuffle going on. Just can you confirm that the Civil Society Minister will stay put? And I've still not had any official confirmation that he is. <laughs> and so, as Steve says, we will be working on the assumption that he's not going anywhere. He is quite popular with the sector at the moment and he does seem to quite enjoy the job. But the fact that the department can't actually send an email saying yay or nay, it doesn't fill me with confidence. No. What else have you been looking at recently, Steve? Okay, the other one, it, it, it focuses on MPs again, and that's not deliberate, but there was some research by Poll Monitor which revealed the top 20 charities mentioned by MPs on Twitter during 2022 which I found quite interesting. Now, the one at number one may not be a massive surprise. It's the Royal British Legion. And I think more than half of those were in November, which isn't surprising. Something that interested me about it was the fact that the vast proportion of the tweets by MPs were 
in support of things that other MPs of their colour were doing. So the most retweeted tweet of the year was when one of the backbench Tories tweeted about Rishi Sunak going out and collecting on the streets for the Royal British Legion back in November. And it makes me think really of that kind of apple for teacher. So they're they're kind of Hmm. um, desperately trying to get the attention of their boss Look! Look! Pick me! Pick me for the reshuffle, or whatever you know, by uh, by doing this, and and it's it just kind of amused me really that that's what they're doing. It's not so much the cause as the attempt to climb the ladder that um, is the motivation behind it. And though I would say, big up to the MP who tweeted the most about charities. Her name is Sarah Champion, appropriately. Mm-hmm. She's an ex-charity chief executive and she was tweeting across the board about all sorts of different charities throughout the year so clearly her background meant her motivation was rather different. Mm. And talking of impressive professional performances Steve we're going to admit that when you put the question to the newsroom can any of us guess which were the most tweeted about charities I mean we were there for about 45 minutes before we came up with any of the right answers either so um, (laughs) it turns out we can't predict MP behaviour any more than Rishi Sunak can. No, quite. Great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we hope that you will become something of a regular fixture to give us the news roundups. Thank you. Thank you very much. Moving on to the next bit of the podcast. But before we bring in our guests, Lucinda, we're going to be talking about collaboration charities working together more closely, more effectively. Why do you think it is such an important issue for the charity sector right now? Well, we are at a time, obviously, where budgets are being squeezed. We were hearing last week from Stephanie Draper at Bond about how the international development sector is under such uncertainty Mm. around whether their funding from the FCDO is going to come after March. This isn't exclusive to the international development sector. At the same time, demand for services is increasing. So it seems like exactly the right time to be asking, can charities get more for less by working together? Can they achieve common goals and with fewer funds? And if they can do that, how can they do that? Listen, third sector likes to claim ownership of these things, but this is going to be happening in trustee rooms, real and virtual all over the country anyway. As you say, financially, Times are tough. Demand's going through the roof all over the place. Charity trustees would be mad not to at least consider, well, are we working closely enough with the other charity down the road or the people who give our beneficiaries slightly different services? Um, Why aren't we doing a bit more with them and can we make it efficient? I guess there's two sides to the argument, aren't there, as normal. One is that let charities get on with what they do best. Let them be nimble and simple. Don't waste time thinking about formal collaboration partnerships and processes just get the services done help the people you help get the work out the door and i I totally understand and sympathize with that Mm. flip side is like any manager of any organization you're going to be looking at how do we get the most bang for our buck what are the economies of scale and all those things that maybe you could kind of deal with a bit more effectively if only you had some more partners to share the burden with so those discussions that we're about to have now with our guests i suspect trustees will recognize and hopefully learn a little bit in the next few minutes from a couple of people who've been right through it yeah well let's hear what they have to say and now we welcome our guests this week campbell chalmers is the strategic engagement lead for the third sector at the royal national institute of blind people or rnib 
He is also a doctor of nursing and previously served as Scotland's only stroke nurse consultant. He spent the past seven years at RNIB. Hi, Campbell. How are you? Hi there. I'm good, thank you. Nice to meet you. And joining us in the studio is Joe Howes, Chief Executive Officer of Buttle UK, a charity which helps children and young people in crisis through grant giving. He's also the chair of the End Child Poverty Coalition, which was set up 20 years ago this year, I believe, to bring together organisations focused on eradicating child poverty. And Joe, that seems like a good place to start. Being a part of this coalition, how does it help charities focused on ending child poverty work together? I think the amazing thing about collaboration, particularly with the coalition, is that it just gives us all this kind of one united voice, really. And, you know, that's the kind of anticipation of it anyway, really. So there are about 80 organisations, both small and really, really large, so from Bernardo's to some really local organisations. Um, it enables us to share learning across those. So some of those bigger organisations being able to share some of the resources and learning that they have with the smaller ones. But also for those organisations, a bit like Buttle, that don't have kind of policy leads and all of that, that it gives us that choice, that chance to advocate on behalf of children and young people where we just don't have the funds to do that normally. Mm. You've covered several different areas in the space for a few seconds. Um, Campbell, how about you at the RNIB, the collaborations that you enter in with other charities? Again, so many different areas, right, from campaigning to income generation to service delivery. Could you just give us a rundown of some of the the big ones that come to mind? Yeah, we've certainly seen a sort of renewing of collaboration and a strengthening of working together. And it really came out of the pandemic um, where we were really unified as a site law sector around supporting our beneficiaries and the sudden impact and change, obviously, that the pandemic created and really try to galvanise and build on that spirit. So we would now find ourselves as that we're working um, collectively as national charities in this arena and also working locally with the local community-based charities, which there's about 120 across the UK that are in the site loss sector, around areas where we can collectively add value. So we've actually got a whole range of kind of thematic areas and work streams that we're looking at, examples being um, health and social care and the access to that, about sharing resources and developing an insight hub mental health and well-being, access to technology, employment, just to name a few. And Campbell, what has RNIB learned itself from those collaborations? I think we've learned a lot, actually. I've seen a real change in attitudes and our internal culture as well around working collaboratively, people being much more open and being a generous collaborator as well, providing opportunities that don't necessarily have an immediate gain for us as an organisation, but by working that strengthens our relationships moving forward as well and really has helped build up, I think, the trust and respect in the sector as well, um, which can only add value and impact, I think, to people affected by sight loss. And building trust, I think, is quite a fundamental component to building a successful collaboration. Perhaps, Joe, can you talk us through times where you've had to build trust and it's worked? We're actually running a, a collaborative partnership with Turn to Us and Smallwood Trust at the moment on a, a gem, gendered poverty program. And it's been a, a little while in the making. We've probably been working together for about a year and a half. Because it's also um, focusing on co-production, 
battle, you know, I wanted to position us in this partnership as well because we've got a lot to learn on co-production and we were able to do that through, you know, learn from, say, Turn to Us, who are brilliant at it. Um, and we're building on that. But in terms of building on trust, it's so important because we've been running through this program. I think our trustees have kind of trusted in us as well as all of our organisations. So important when we live in an age now where it's like, what's the output? What's the impact of this now, now, now? And it's important to have a board that can kind of listen to you and put faith in you to give you time to build those trust levels. Because if you don't build them, within you know, if you kind of, right, we're going to move on quickly over three months, things will start to fall apart pretty quickly then anyway. It is also a kind of, there's a piece of me that does just want to act immediately as well. I think you do need to temper that a little bit and build that trust with these, you know, with other organizations you're working with, because that's the long-term change that can help with the long-term change you're seeking essentially. So kind of my advice there as well is like, go easy on yourselves around that action orientation, allow the relationship focus to really, really take control. Is that something you'd recognize as well, Campbell? Yeah, very much so. I think that's the fundamental is about building that trust. And it's it's an easy thing to say, but it's not an an easy thing to do. And I think it's not only building that trust, it's then maintaining that trust. And I think it's really through strong leadership. And I think it's through living that value and then demonstrating them behaviours. So I think, you know, people look for people, you know, we try and demonstrate integrity, communicate effectively try and be open and collaborative in what we're doing and really try and get that kind of common impact around what we're doing, try and be reliable. And also you need a bit of resilience as well when you're working with others, but it's kind of demonstrating the outcomes and impact that really make a difference. So fighting off the sort of sceptics that say, well, it takes more time, it slows everything down, it takes more resource. But the benefits, you know, if you can focus on them, you really see things being driven forward much more impactfully. Are there a lot of sceptics? Is there a big fight to be had to, to make the case for collaboration? I think there can be, yes. Um, so that's part of my role is not only to work externally, but also work internally. And I can think there can be sceptics. There's what I call perhaps corrosive language as well. So like sometimes I'll be in a meeting and a senior member of staff will just say something slightly negative or derogatory about partner. And it's just correcting that and not allowing that to be sort of part of the fabric of the way that you're working. It can also be very challenging when you're working externally because, you know, you can be open and collaborative. It doesn't necessarily mean people that you're working with are either externally. So sometimes you've got to be quite resilient and sometimes as well challenge behaviours. You know, and question things, you get what I call the abots. Everybody goes, oh, abot, abot. And they want to bring in a bit of realism to what you're doing. And it's important to listen to that. But then you get also people that are what I would call disruptors. They just try and are not really there for the greater good. And they're just trying to be a bit disruptive of what you're trying to achieve. So it's calling them out sometimes as well. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say on that as well, in terms of you know building trust, I think we're looking at it kind of across organisations. I think there is a kind of bridging with the public as well. Um, I think the public, they don't, you know, they're not thinking about charity collaboration all of the all of the time of course i think they they probably expect that we're doing this and have been doing this a lot more than historically i'd say than we have been and actually we kind of need to highlight that we we are doing this because it makes sense you know when i talk about the end child poverty coalition and we're working across 80 organizations and sharing all of our learning and uniting behind that one voice 
the public had absolutely so yeah of course but you've been doing this anyway haven't you and so it is about building that trust yeah we are doing this mm. and we're, we're going to tell you how we're doing that too i remember many years ago interviewing somebody who'd been involved in the make poverty history campaign and they said that the trust issues were really serious that they found themselves almost all the charities involved had to take a bit of a break because they'd been so exhausting and so tough build the trust get the resilience in place as campbell's described and then execute the program a huge issue like global poverty you can't get something more serious and then everyone took some time off for a year or more because they said well, that was hard and we need to refresh a little bit before we do it again do you think there's a way to sort of have a rolling collaboration that doesn't require those breaks almost i'm i'm sure that that's been done but i don't know if they're ones that we've worked on i think there have definitely been things that Buttle have worked on, say, with the Grant Makers Alliance, which are kind of a small group of large fund individual grant makers, essentially. And we kind of, right at the start of any collaboration, which is pooling funds quite generally, we will say, actually, this might be a collaboration for a set amount of time, but then we're very honest with ourselves about, are we the right people to hold on to this project? And we pass it on. We've done something like that with um, in relation to 360 Giving, the platform, and where we've said, look, we want to fund this and we want to kickstart it, but we don't want to hold on to it. And we've passed it over to the Association for Charitable Organisations. So I think that there is that kind of bit of, yeah, I'm sure there are ones that just need a bit of a break. But I also think there are ones that are very much time bound and they don't need to continue. And you've got to be honest about that from the start anyway. And Campbell, I understand that RNIB's response to recent crises has had quite heavy emphasis on collaboration with other organizations from COVID to the Ukraine crisis. How do you approach those partnerships? Obviously, Joe was talking about the need to take time to build trust and to foment a good relationship between organizations. But how do you do that when you're when you're seriously time restricted in a crisis situation? You know, I think at a time of crisis, it's slightly different. I think you have to be reactive and responsive from the COVID work that we did, we actually created a crisis response plan. And I had this imagination that it'd be just something that would sit on the shelf and we wouldn't really refer, have to refer to it again. But it's now been drawn down twice, first for the Ukraine war. Collectively, we wanted to actually respond to that as a sector. And then more recently, for the cost of living crisis. And for the cost of living crisis, a great example where we've really collectively tried to address areas such as what we call eating, heating, the community and warm spaces and making sure people are connected in their community and ensuring people's financial and grants are kind of sorted out. But what we did in that circumstance was also recognise that it wasn't just people with sight loss, obviously our direct beneficiaries, but also people in the wider disability sector. So we had just recently there a campaign, support can't wait, hashtag support can't wait. Um, over 40 charities in the sight loss and disability sectors took part We've got a tremendous reach of 2.5 million and it's really driven influence around trying to improve the benefits and support for people with disability now that are actually suffering as a result of this cost of living crisis we're in. And do either of you have tips for how to end a coalition? Collaboration happens all the time, but as you've both said, it, sort of, it comes to an end. There'll be campaigns that are, are executed and then that's the end of that. How do you make sure those relationships survive even after the formal collaboration is gone? I think, uh, I mean, I spoke about one being time bound anyway when you start, but uh, I've also certainly um, had challenges where you're building those trusting relationships. You're prepared to take the time, but actually sometimes you kind of see 
this isn't going to go somewhere with with maybe one partner in that. And that's a bit about building the trust, actually, um, and making sure that if you do have to have those challenging conversations, you can have those openly. They're tough because if you're doing some fantastic work, people want to stay in that. But it, if that's possibly changing some of the red lines that everyone laid down from the start, you've got to dive into that and say, listen, we've, we've got to move this on and this might not be with you. And then it's just about, I think actually there's a bit about shared learning after that. It's not that you're, it's not that you're not involved in this at all. It's just that maybe come in later on when you're meeting those red lines a bit more with us and we'll share all the learning with you anyway. And it's certainly not leaving them out in the cold. And has RNIB managed relationships in a, a similar way? Yeah, I would say, you know, we talk about our core business. So in the sense that there's about 150 charities specifically in the site loss sector that we are operating in. So they are relationships that we never want to end. They are relationships that we are trying to sustain and build, both with national charities, but also with the regional and local ones. Because I think the challenge can be a charity, although we're independent, if you operate in isolation, that's where you know sometimes activities you're doing has a ramification in a a wider context so you have to be aware of that sometimes positive sometimes negative so I would say we have what we call our core business and these are relationships we'll always want to try and build and sustain and then beyond that I think it goes back to really being clear about the scope so if you're going in for a Pacific so it's a Pacific campaign or a Pacific project that that will have a beginning middle and end it's got a clear strategic purpose clear outcomes that you're trying to achieve so everybody knows and it could be that you want to build on that in the future but being clear that it's a clear end point as well. And I understand as well that you have been referred to as a double glazing salesman within your current role would you care to tell us a little bit about why that might be? Well thank you for raising that yes (laughs) (laughs) my family thought thought that was hilarious yeah well I've been called uh, many things. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll start with a positive one. I was called a chief UN ambassador because part of this, the role of working collaboratively is that you have to be that ambassador, you have to negotiate, you have to sometimes be the go-between and try and influence as well. Uh, but I had say, I was told that I had the persistence of a double glazing salesperson because sometimes you've just got to keep at it, you've got to keep focused on what you're trying to achieve, you've just got to keep repeating. Sometimes, like I've said this, 10 times before, but you've just got to keep repeating the message. And I don't necessarily know if you're, you're, you're focused on the right priority, you're focused on your goal, then I don't mind being called a double glazing salesman. If it, it still got me the outcome that I was looking for. So the person, that was where we were trying to establish actually Insight Hub and it involved eight partners, involved legal and collaborative agreements and funding from these eight partners. And I had to get them all to agree, all to sign the legal agreements, all to get the funding together, which was a mammoth task in that sense. So persistence paid off because we did get there and it's launching in the spring. Fabulous. Persistence is also a good journalistic trait, I've always been told. So if you ever want a career change, I reckon you'd be oven ready. (laughs) And Joe, what would be your top tips for somebody sitting listening to this thinking about initiating or executing a collaboration with another charity or another group of charities something i don't think it's necessarily been mentioned first of all maybe this is for the smaller charities but i think it's really easy for us all to kind of say and put in our strategies we're really collaborative but if you don't actually try any of these things out 
and you're not flexible in your collaborations, I think you have to test yourself. Are we really actually collaborative? Because we, we feel like we've got the vibe of it. But actually, when we go into these rooms, we're very stuck to how we work and we, you know, we get into the detail of that. And you, you've got to challenge yourself and say, well, we've got to be flexible to hit that final goal. So I think that that's certainly one thing. I think um, giving yourself that time that we talked about that to build that trusting relationship, to talk to senior teams or trustees, if that's relevant, to say, look, let's give ourselves the time to do this and then be really clear about your goals, as we've said. But actually, when you first start off, even as you're building that trusting relationship, be really clear about the red lines there for you as well, because these have come up quite often when I've been in collaborations where I felt so good in a way that actually, do you know what? We've talked about that always from the start. This is no surprise to anyone in the room. And and it feels like, no, people, others kind of say, no, they've been really clear on this. You've been clear. You're not changing the goal, moving the goalposts or anything. So yeah, I think just be really clear on those red lines. So Joe's top tips, clarity, giving it plenty of time and being willing to challenge yourself and challenge the partners around you. What would you add to that from RNIB's perspective, Campbell? Yeah, um, well, when we're looking to build strategic relationships, you know, very much we think about the sort of scope and the purpose and the impact or outcome that we're looking to see. So we've been very clear about the scope. Is this along like an established relationship you want to maintain or are you going in for a specific reason, Is it a campaign or a project? What is the purpose? Is it a strategic, operational? We have commercial purposes or income generation purposes. And what is the outcome or impact that we're trying to achieve? So being very clear about all them aspects. I think it's really important to know as well, asking your partners what they want as well. We do an annual kind of survey just with the partners we work regularly to say, well, what is of value when we work together? So trying to think of that win-win. And they come to us with the four Cs. And I think they've got wider relevance. So they say they want us to be open and collaborative. So looking for a two-way kind of collaboration. They want us to communicate frequently and regularly through different platforms and mediums. They want continuity actually as well because they want to see that there's consistency in what we're doing and in perhaps the relationships that they have as well. And for us as well, they want campaigning. So they want to see where we can join forces and have that unification, the one voice amplification that was talked about earlier. And in your years as strategic engagement lead for the third sector, is there one particular collaboration that particularly stands out to you that you're particularly proud to have brought to fruition? Uh, Yeah, there's probably a few, but I suppose the one that I would go back to is what we call the visual impairment charity sector partnerships. And that was really this partnership that formed following the pandemic. And it's chaired by uh, RNB's own CEO, Matt Stringer, but it involves the eight national sight loss charities. The main ones being, the big ones being Guide Dogs, that people may be familiar with, Thomas Pocklin Trust, Blind Veterans UK, and other charities, and Visionary, which is the membership body of these 120 local sight loss charities. And really, it's been two years we've been developing and evolving and the partnership's really gone from strength to strength and hopefully it'll create a legacy moving forward. It's something that we're going to continue to work together on and to build on. I think it needs that review and refresh, but I would say I'm particularly proud that we've got to this stage so far. 
I think I'm going to say, actually, just in the way that Buttle UK works, we're a really small team. It gives me a chance to actually plug all the frontline organisations we work with across the UK. Really small team of 20 people. We work in a network of about 500 organisations to get our grants out to children and young people. And it's the kind of highest form of collaboration in that way. So it enables us to get more funding out there rather than focusing that money on our central resources. And we're just incredibly amazed at the the awesome work that they're doing on the front line to do that. So, yeah, great collaboration. Great. Well, Joe Howes, Chief Executive of Buttle and Campbell Chalmers, the Strategic Engagement Lead at the RNIB. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now in the hot seat in the studio, we have got our acting editor, Andy Ricketts. Hello, Andy. Hello, Lucinda. It's good to be in. I popped into the pod booth to break some very exciting news. Hot off the press. What is it? Indeed. So we are launching Third Sector TV. It's been an idea that's been in an embryonic stage for quite a while, but we are very excited that we're going to have the first episode of Third Sector TV on the 2nd of March. Right. The format is it's going to be live streamed through our website, which gives people who are watching the opportunity to ask questions, which we're really excited about. And the first guest is a very good one. Who is it? Who is it? Indeed, I'll give you the chance to answer that. It is Helen Stevenson, Chief Executive of the Charity Commission. She's going to be joining us at 11am on 2nd of March. So we'll have some introductory chat with her when I'll be interviewing her. But then anybody who's watching live through the Third Sector website will have the opportunity to post questions. So any hot questions for the Chief Executive of the Charity Commission, tune in to Third Sector TV. That's on the website. Yes. Yes. Find all the information on the website. And uh, if you're a subscriber or if you have a free trial, you'll just be able to watch it through a news page. Excellent. Thank you, Andy. And yes, you can also find details about that launch of Third Sector TV and the interview with Helen Stevenson in the show notes to this episode. One of the other things we're doing is publishing the transcripts from these podcasts so that anybody who wants to can read a bit more into the things that we're discussing and the issues that we hopefully are illuminating for our listeners. That's good. Um, so does that mean that next week it's going to be a case of merger she wrote? Um, well, Andy, you're very welcome in the podcast anytime. <laughs> it's almost like you've never been away. Anyway, they are going to be posted on the Third Sector website. So those transcripts will be available to all. And again, there will be a link in the show notes. That's it for this week. We're going to be joined next week to talk about mergers one step on from collaboration with Keith Valentine, Chief Executive of Fight for Sight, which many of you will know is in the process of merging with the Vision Foundation. But for now, we thank our guests, Campbell Chalmers and Joseph Howes, and our producer, Naf Pal. Join us again next week. See you next week. <laughs>